Welcome to Weird Sequence, Season 1, Sequence 7, Ubik by Philip K. Dick. Be aware spoilers and trigger warnings for the following. Death, murder, graphic descriptions of dying, terrorist activity, paranormal monsters, hopelessness, and unpleasant sibilance. Hello, welcome to Weird Sequence. We're your hosts, Phil Alighieri and Damien Haster. And each episode, we take a look at a book that we, for whatever reason, think is strange or unusual and discuss it at length. This time, we have picked Philip K. Dick's Ubik. Yes. Yeah, this is a thing that we read. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not terribly familiar with um, Philip K. Dick outside of. Uh, the Man in the High Castle and do uh, Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. I'd never heard of this book, but I'm glad that I read it. It was it's really uh, interesting. It is a really interesting book. Um, Philip K. Dick is also a really interesting man. Um, you know, he frequently, uh, in a lot of his work, he will look at themes of paranoia, heavy drug use, and there's a good reason for that. Uh, I think he he published something ridiculous like three dozen novels in about a four or five year span. And the way he would do this was he was uh, basically abusing amphetamines. As you do. Which comes up in Ubik a lot because, oh, you can't sleep? Don't worry, take an amphetamine. There's a dispenser around the corner. Right. Uh, As a consequence, he also suffered from uh, pretty significant paranoia. And one of his many, many books is uh, Exogenesis, which is an analysis of a supposed spiritual event that he had and him trying to rationalize it and the, the events around it. And it it's more likely he just had a full out psychological break, but nonetheless, he does a lot of dark fantasy stories or did most famously do Android's dream of electric sheep, which was the basis for blade runner, total recall minority report, and uh, uh, a scanner darkly, which have all been really? turned into. Oh uh, yeah, oh, I didn't know that one. Wow. Yeah, uh, Man in the High Castle, obviously. Yes. Uh, you know he uh, he when he wrote Man in the High Castle, he used the I Ching, the the Chinese uh, divination book, to decide where the plot went. When there was a plot point where there was a division in the story, he would consult the I Ching, and whatever the I Ching said, that's kind of what the book would do. I don't know how much success he got in his lifetime, um, you know, and he got picked up, obviously, as the basis for Blade Runner, big production, lots of money, and he died four months before it was released. Oh, that's too bad. Well, given that was the original theatrical release, that's maybe not a bad thing. Um, so. So, Ubik, do you want to give a, an overview of Ubik? Can you no. give an overview? Are you capable of giving no, an overview? No, I, I, I really don't. I want, I want you I'm to still, do it. Because... I'm still not exactly <laughs> sure what, what's going on here. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so in, do it? We, we'll, we'll trade off because All right. this is... <sighs> it's a lot. This is a, this is a relatively short book. I, I think, uh, uh, although he calls them novel- novels, I think they're actually, most of his work is kind of novellia length. Yeah, and this is, the copy the copy you gave me is two hundred twenty four pages. Yeah, and this is um, this is dense. So, yeah. roughly speaking, uh, in the future they have this concept of half life. So when somebody dies, you can put them in cryo suspension, and you can, for a period of time afterwards, commune with them. Like they wheel the little coffin out, and you can talk to them. So that's that's one one point of the story. Right. There's. Glenn Runciter, who runs a, a a company that basically provides psychic talent to nullify active psychic attacks. And he frequently talks to his dead wife for advice about the company. And at the beginning, com- at the beginning, there's something about a, um, a some kind of a psionic agent that's gone rogue or something. Yeah, that's that they, um, talk about, they talk about extensively. Uh, yeah, Sipole, the- something like that. I thought it was Greek name. I don't think. Well, it might be Greek. But uh, yeah, so this very powerful psychic has disappeared, and they are trying to track him down because he's the kind of person who's incredibly powerful, and you can always tell where he is and what he's attacking as he wanders around the earth and his colonies. 
except he's gone completely dark. They don't know where he is. No idea. Through a somewhat convoluted series of events, find this guy. They they realize there's a bunch of psychics that they've been nullifying that have disappeared. So Ransita brings in a, a team of his operatives, including a guy called Joe Chip, who isn't psychic, but does some kind of psychic kind of analysis, I guess. He's like power field analysis. Yeah. And they go to the moon thinking that this is possibly where they've all gone um, to, to try and aid uh, this billionaire who's asked, who's got some secret project. He's scared they're going to steal secrets from his employees' minds. Come up here and help yeah, me nullify yeah. the situation. And then it all goes wrong. There's a yeah, bomb. There's also, there's also a, a, at the beginning of the book, Joe Chip is introduced when this recruiter guy brings him in to assess the powers of this woman who has some kind of new <laughs> psychic power that nobody's ever seen where she can somehow affect the past. She, she has the ability the, to affect, go back and edit events that have already happened. Right. So she can change the whole timeline based on something that she wills to happen in the mm. past. It's a way of neutralizing precogs without the precogs realizing they've been neutralized. Yes. Um, precogs being, you know, People that can do, uh, like, read the future. Right. With me so yeah. far? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. The, I, think, I think one of the confusing things about this that kind of gets resolved wait, 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 in wait, the wait. end. But... I, I, I want to point out at this point, we're not a third of the way into the story. And it hasn't no, no, gotten this is like, really this is weird like page yet. page 20, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, there's so many, there's so many like little threads that I feel like there's like red herrings too. Like you're not really sure like what information is important for the story and what's not important. So you kind of, you're like mm -hmm. trying to store it all in your head and remember it, but then the story keeps going and you're, and you're not really sure where it's going. Uh, well, but, it, it, but, it's, but it's there's also, a reason for it's that. Also, it's also, well, okay. Yes, you're right. There's a reason for this. So basically they get to the moon and it's a booby trap. For everybody in the team, they think Glenn Runciter gets killed by this bomb. They all get back to the ship. They all go back to Earth. Things start right. to go horribly wrong. They get visions. People start to rapidly age and die. Yeah, this Ch Joe Chip cigarettes crumble to dust in his hands. Yeah, they keep turning to dust. The, um, the, the coffee creamer is curdled. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this, this is problem one, because Joe Chip and the 12 other operatives that, w that went to the moon with him, are all trapped in as as they come to realize in Half Life, and actually, but Glenn runs to the other Do they, do they realize side. that? They that, do eventually. That, that that takes them like two thirds of the book to realize that. Well, they they eventually get there, but they but, they right. they realize they're in they're in Half Life. They realize that you know Glenn Runster is the only one that survived, and they realize that they're all sort of undergoing rapid entropy and just right. turning to dust. And the entire world around them is like reverting. Back in backwards in time. Yeah. So, uh, what's the term they use in the book? It's reverting to a previous form of itself. Right. And so, like the first, the first. I mean, the first signs, aside from the cigarettes and stuff, is like um, when they when they get to the hotel. The one Al uh, sees like a 1930s elevator, but Joe mm -hmm. Chip sees a modern elevator, and um, and then the operatives start disappearing. Because they're dying, right? And the one, the one operative that he kind of has a thing with uh, is found like mummified in a closet, uh, like mummified from age, not because she was actually mummified, but her body was just there for so long that. Which this this story is so hilariously dense. I had to go back and reread that because there's this 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 kind of slight reoccurring theme about oh well I liked. I don't even want to name it, Muggins. Right. And the the problem is I completely missed the part, the literal paragraph. They're like, yeah, I kind of got a thing for her and she's kind of got a thing for me. And it's like, yeah. oh, was was there a whole unrequited thing there? I, I completely missed that. Yeah, um, and that, that, that particular point is important because for most of the book, they're setting up this operative that they recruited who has the power to change the future, to change the present by going, by changing the past. Mm -hmm. They're kind of setting her up as the villain, as the bad guy. Yes, and there is a fantastic fake-out where you think that she's the one that's sort of willing Joe chipped to death at one point, and it turns out mm -hmm. that no, it's actually someone else, and she quite incorrectly assumes that she's doing this when she's not. Yeah. It then comes, he then 
because people in these half-life caskets in proximity can kind of communicate with each other. They're in like a shared, mm-hmm. I guess, experience. There's there's one moment at the beginning of the of the kind of near the beginning of the book where Runciter is is um, trying to converse with his wife about what's going on, and then suddenly she disappears, and this like kid shows up. Jory. And, yeah, Jory shows up, and and he can't get Jory to go away, and the mm-hmm. the owner of the of the place like is like, oh, that's just Jory. We'll put her back in the thing, and then he'll go mm-hmm. away after a while, and. Uh, it kind of just like it happens like jory shows up and then the the story moves on and you're like what the heck was that (laughs) but it becomes relevant um right because it turns out actually jory is the one that's uh i guess in in essence draining people's life force for want of a better descriptor yes he's uh... and ella runciter who is you know runciter's wife that is in half-life that he talks to kind of how do they describe this this sort of beautiful 20-year-old woman who kind of died prematurely. Um, turns out that she's making Ubik, which is this sort of, I don't even know, spirit-stabilizing spray? Yeah, it's like a, <laughs> it's like a, temporal, a temporal stabilizer thing. But it's not really a temporal stabilizer, but that's the effect it has on the Half-Life world that they're in. Right. They, um, they, they fully, in complete detail, explain what it is, and it means nothing. Right. And, and the, the entire book, like every chapter, there's like a little, a little like, Ubik advert that, like, you know, they start out, it starts out kind of, like, it doesn't really make sense. Then it just starts going crazy, like, uh, like... You know, eat your cereal with Ubik, and then like at the end, it's always like use only as directed, like safe yeah. if used direct, used effective. Like, oh, well, here's the one from the the start of chapter three. Instant Ubik has all the fresh flavor of just brewed drip coffee. Your husband will say, "Christ, Sally, I used to think your coffee was only so-so, but now, wow, safe when taken as directed." Yeah, and there's so like, a whole story about him trying to track down a can of this thing when he should use it because sometimes it's you know it's a can it's a spray can which is why it's supposed to be used but sometimes it reverts back to like jars of like liver salts and all kinds of crazy things yeah and then and the the you know another another aspect of this that that makes it crazy is um uh glenn Renseter starts manifesting in the world like the right like when they think he's dead, is, yeah, he starts to appear. They think on the he's money. dead, and he starts like manifesting. He starts appearing on the money. He starts like writing messages on the bathroom wall, and like he appears in commercials on the TV, mm-hmm. and and so and and it kind of like he's trying to lead them to the truth, but they're interpreting it in a very different way than it really is. Yeah, uh, my 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 favorite one was the message he put on the um, speeding ticket. Oh yeah, <laughs> Joe Chip got for driving the 1930s car down the only street that was apparently manifested in Illinois. Yes, um, but yeah, so they he he it wasn't you in know, Kansas. I think Des Moines, right? Oh, Des Moines. You're right. Sorry. So yeah, he he. Uh, I think I think all of the the other telepaths. Well, all of the telepaths died because Joe Chip's not a telepath. Joe Chip survives. Ella Runciter, it's implied, passes on to a new life. Because Half Life only lasts a certain length of time, and then you know the spirit passes on. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a, there's apparently the Buddhists are right. Whatever their, yes. their view of, of, <laughs> of reincarnation, the way it if works. You, if is you like, don't get it right, you do indeed get reincarnated. Right, and you have to wait for the right kind of light. If it's a red light, that means that you know two people are fornicating or something, and you don't want to be in that body. Well, it's it's a uh, smoky red light is. Um, how to explain it? Is this basically like a, a problem, like a bad life to go to, and then you know the the more sort of orange and lighter it is, the better the life that you'll have. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Joe Chip gets this. He ends up, you know, now being in charge of all the Ubik, um, and then it cuts to Glenn Runciter, who's you know in the um, moratorium, moratorium yeah, where all these bodies are. Yes trying to figure out what to do with, you know, getting his rival who's tried to have them killed, kind of prosecuted, dealing with all of his dead staff, his company that's now had all its super rare psionic talent gutted out. Mm. And then he starts to find money with Joe Chip's face on. 
right. sort of implying that like, he is also actually in half. Dun dun dun. Yeah, and then it turns, and and then you're like, and that's where the book ends. That's where the book like, ends. Like, uh, we're I mean we're spoiler tastic here. The last page. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and he recognized the profile. I wonder yeah. what this means. He asked himself, strangest thing I've ever seen. Most things in life eventually can be explained, but Joe Chip on a 50 cent piece? It was Which the is... first Joe Chip money he'd ever seen. He had an, in, an intuition, chillingly, that if he searched his pockets and his billfold, he would find more. This was just the beginning. Like, that's how the book ends. Like, yeah. So then you're like, okay, this is Inception. Right? <laughs> how how deep into the half life are we going? Are we three levels deep, four levels deep now? What's going on? You know, was it was it ever was anybody ever alive for the whole story? It, it, it's okay. Deep breath. Yeah. That's the summary. Right. There is there is a spectacular amount to unpack here. Yes. There are so many themes from. You know, the, the apartments and all of the hotels needing, have basically having coin dispensers to use doors. Yeah, that's Because everything that's is, so is super free it made market. Me, it made me think of like, a, of like a, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with the, with the, the sentient doors and the sentient elevators. <laughs> it, it, actually, um, uh, it actually made me think of my great aunt who actually passed this week. Um, but I remember as a kid, they, they would rent a TV because mm-hmm. they had a fancy color one. And on the back, there was actually a coin slot. You'd put in a 50p piece, and then you'd twist a dial. Mm-hmm. And that would give you, I think it was two hours of television. And then the guy would come and check the TV was working and collect the coins, like, every month or so. <laughs> we, uh, we rented a, a, little, a little house on, uh, on Inishmore in, in Ireland that um, had... The, the electricity was coin operated, so oh yeah, the coin operated. Pop in, pop in a couple euro and have a couple hours of yeah electricity. That's how my grandmother's house was, but yeah, I mean, there's you know, this is not just the the, the appliances. This is the cupboards, the shower. Right. This one party can't get out of the apartment because the door right. won't take his credit, and he doesn't have any coins on him. Right, and um, there's like there's like three or four pages where he's dickering with the door about like. Oh come on, door! I'll you know I'll pay you back, and and the door's like there's no, not no, a, there's not there's not a credit company in the universe that would that would take your money like <laughs> yeah, and it's um it's fascinating. So there's there's that there's these themes of um you have these people with psychic talents battling against these people who have the ability to nullify psychic talents mm-hmm. um, constantly. There's what's the what's the what's Runciter's rival's name? He he seems to have like a whole like where um, Runciter has a has a company of of like anti psi operatives. Mm-hmm. This other guy has like a, a company of active psi operatives. I'm trying to remember the name now. It'll come to me in a second. But yes, he he does have a his entire company is actively attacking. Well, not attacking exactly because you don't know they do this, but they read people's minds for corporate secrets, all this kind of thing. Hollis. Yeah, that's his name. Yeah. Hollis versus Runciter Associates. Uh, so there's, there's this whole thing about sort of Sinex battling. There's a lot of themes of sort of heavily commercialized space future technology. Mm-hmm. There there's a, a very distinct dystopian feel to the whole thing. There's a there's a very distinct dystopian feel. Mm-hmm. There is this, and there's strange... even there's even like you know there's there's Runciter and Associates that are on one side, and Hollis that's on the other side. But then there are like governing bodies that enforce rules yes. about how this thing is going, and like when the when the bomb explodes and they think that Runciter is dead, they're all obsessing over like oh what like. I forget what the, the governing body is called, but they're they're all obsessed about like what are they going to think? How are we going to file these reports? We're going to have so much paperwork. And is uh, it the is it the Prudent Society? It's something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So there's there's, there's all that going on, and then you know they're in Half Life, and they're in this 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 world, and it's it turns out the entire world that they're in is being projected by Jory. He's he's creating essentially this this illusion that they're in, and it's. Right he's losing control of it. So everything keeps flipping backwards. And for some reason he keeps thinking about the 1930s. So there's also this really strange section where they go from, well, we're taking a spaceship to the moon where the guy is 
trying to trade a bottle of Ubik, which isn't useful to him, for a jalopy plane flight to Des Moines from 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 uh, from Chicago or from New York? From New York, yeah. I think. Yeah, which and is still like going to take like two days or something outrageous. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Like there was a part in the book where I where I thought like. I, I don't know if he's going to make it to Des Moines. Like, like you know, you, you've gone from you've gone from rocket ships to to driving, you know, horseless carriage basically. And there is there is a lot, there is a lot of situations that Joe Chip finds himself in where he should have died. Yeah, and it's he has this, he's actually apart from being bad with money, he's actually a, a, the character is a fairly intelligent guy, but he's sort of he has this fatalist bent. Yeah, he's like the he's like the the old worn out like private eye who chain smokes and and drinks whiskey yeah. on the clock and stuff like. <laughs> yeah, and then there's kind of corporate espionage, but you're not sure if that's why they planted a bomb. So yeah, and the bomb is like a person. Yeah, it was like a mannequin that that clung to the ceiling. Please. Please, if you think we're being crazy describing this, go and read this book. It's yeah, it's it's the trippiest three days of your life if you read it like a chunk in the evening. Um, yeah, Pat Conley was the the psychic that could bend time, by the way. Yes, yeah, and she. I mean, the the, the book does it. The, the Philip K. Dick did a really good job of misdirecting me to thinking that Pat was the bad guy. I mean, I had her picked out as when the, when the weird things started happening. I thought this is Pat. It's got to be Pat. So let's let's talk about let's talk about good guys versus bad guys. So Pat is the bad guy, or they set her up to be the bad guy, but then it turns out she's not the bad guy, but she's still kind of a bad guy. Right. Because the implication, well, it's not the implication. I think actually Runster actually says it at one point. He, he pretty much thinks Hollis. that the, the agent, you know, Gigi Ashwood, who found her, Hollis, who's their big rival, and Pat Conley herself are probably all in league to manipulate themselves into a point to do the attack. Mm-hmm. It just turns out that there's a badder bad guy. <laughs> right. There's, there's, there's actually a worse bad guy and Pat kind herself doesn't realize that she's not the bad guy no, until she she until, she fully like until after she leaves the hotel room where she thinks that that Chip is there just going to die and turn Yeah. Dust. She she's she's like, "Well, I'll come back and look at the dust in a minute." And then you find out that she's walked down the corridor, started to cough and then just insta mummified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, she she absolutely believes for some reason in Half-Life she has this ability to just crush people like this in fact she she fully believes the entire environment the you know being back in the 1930s is her is her handiwork and there's a there's a great sequence where joey is sort of starting to degrade where he's suffering the effects of this this sort of drain on him where she's she's gloating and it's 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 a fantastic piece of gloating because there's no attempt to be redeemable there's no attempt to be helpful or good. She's basically no, standing she there going like, she does, she does you're going him. to die, and I'm I'm going to encourage you to walk all the way somewhere nice and private, and I'm going to watch you die slowly the whole time. Mm. There is no attempt to make her likable or, or sort of give her a, a subtle kind of um, differing view on this. She straight up believes she's killing these people, and she's okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, she's a really, really interesting character, and um, and that that scene with the where he's going up the stairs that has to be like the most heroic stairwell ascension ever <laughs> written. It's certainly the most dramatic because um, he's like he's like mummifying as he's walking up there, and yeah. And oh then, yeah, he he. It, there's there's a very very uh, graphic description of him literally, literally how he feels knowing for well that he's actually actively dying while he's doing this. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, by the way. They find a can of Ubik. Well, he goes... He, he They close the hotel door, and then Runster is there. Like, yes. sitting in the hotel room. And he Except it's not Runster. Right. 
It's Jory. Um, was was no? I thought Jory was uh, Jory was was the other guy. It was um, um, one of the other operatives. You're right. Because right. he he sprays because Grunsitter sprays Chip with the Ubik and he gets better. And he's like, "Oh, there's only a little bit left, but you better use it because you're going to start soon." And so he sprays his buddy, and That's then like, buddy. and then the illusion like pit, peters out, and he sees that it's Jory. Yeah, it, the, the, <clears throat> it turns out the the other associate that was with them, that was uh, a friend of, of Joe's, is is dead in New York. Yeah. And then, like, the way, like, Jory is, the way that they describe Jory is kind of like, like, you know, he was a kid once, but now he's kind of like, his skin is ashen gray, and it, he, it's he's almost, kind of like, almost like vampiric. Well, I, I don't think it's almost. I mean, it, maybe not vampiric, but ghoulish. Oh, for sure. You know, he, he he's fully, yes, I'm eating these people. Yeah. It is literally the term he used. You know, I'm, I'm consuming these people to support myself. It's. Um, yeah. I, I found Jory when he appears to be very creepy, and it, it's interesting because they sort of signal right at the start that Jory is going to be something significant to the story. Right. It, it's foreshadowed pretty hard, I think. Yeah, you but don't realize. But when he does it actually it appear, it's just like, oh no, this is this has gone wrong. This isn't the, the you know the the little kids like oh hey I'm just trying to talk to someone Mister I never get to talk to people this is just like no I'm willfully killing people because I don't want to die yeah 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 he's very um, gleefully very... killing people because he doesn't want to die yeah the the malevolence that's in mm-hmm. Jory is is very high and it, it and when he appears it's like you know like like you said like this is no longer like a sci-fi heist story this is you know, this is Salem's lot now. <laughs> oh, this this story, it, it builds up to this this mission. They they start this mission to the moon, and then it just it just takes a hard right into Crazy Town. Yeah, they don't even really start the mission. Like they no. get to the moon, and they're like, "Okay, we'll take this reading, and then we'll go." And then the guy's like, "No, don't take the reading." And Joe Chip's like, "I already did." And then the guy explodes, and then you know it all goes to hell. Like they don't even. There's the revelation that actually there are no psychics on that section of the moon. Right. Then the, the robot explodes and it all goes to hell. Yes. And then you, you get caught up in you get caught up in the mission kind of flowing, like, oh, we're doing this thing, we're looking for these people, we're here, we're doing an investigation, we've come to help you, we're going to save the day. And it doesn't go like that. And it, it's yeah. actually a, a very realistic situation, I think. Because it, right. it's not it's not like, you know, oh, we've come in guns blazing and we're going to dodge a bullet and, you know, keep moving like this. They go there, they get ambushed. It's 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 a straight up trap. Yeah. And, and they don't see it a... coming and they do get killed. It's... Yeah. <laughs> and and the, the moments after the bomb goes off when Joe Chip is trying to kind of assess the damage and get everybody like marshaled and stuff like you, you're you're heavily into this like. This, you, like, you are invested in you know, like a disaster space, situation, like this space heist that's gone wrong. Yeah, and and you don't even realize how wrong it's gone. Like, <laughs> which which is which is another interesting thing because there are so many points in the story where it's like, oh wow, how could this possibly get worse? Mm. And okay, sure, you know, you now you're facing financial ruin. Okay, we can work around that. Okay, now we're. We, we've lost these people. We're fa- facing complete destruction of the of the company. We okay. We can we can deal with that. Well, now now our boss is dead. Okay. Well, this is sucks, but there's a process for this. We we can figure this out. Right. Okay, we have to well, get him into cryo and get him back to right, Switzerland and right, get him and then figure out who's going to take charge of the company. But actually, he's not dead. We might be dead, and we're randomly dying of something. Okay. Right. We can figure this out. Um, you know, we all have the to team stay together. Separated. Except now, everybody everybody's separated and gone to Des Moines. Out. Now I have to go to Des Moines. Des Moines. Like it's, it's like, and now it's not the future anymore. Now it's 1930, and I have to fly there in like a time itself has gone wrong. But it's okay. Yeah. We can work this out. My, my team's destruction is accelerating. Uh, I'm being affected by this. One of my team is turns out a traitor who's trying to kill me. It's okay. We can figure this out. Um, okay, you know, they've this, died. This is, I'm okay. This it's, is a this is a this is a clear situation where you'd want the doctor to show up. 
the like Delta? If, oh, yeah. God. Like if like if the TARDIS had showed up in the middle of the book, you'd be like, okay, okay, everything's gonna be fine. Everything's all right. No, this there's definitely a point though where you get what two thirds of the way through the story, and Joe Chip sits down and is like, well, I'm just gonna sit here, have a nap, and die. It's right. Like, no, that seems like the perfectly logical, right. reasonable course of action. This is, this is so insane. Yeah. Um, and it is. You know, you, you you come from this world where they basically have. It's basically corporate paranoia. You know, people tracking and and and, and nullifying these psychics, to this environment where, they can't even trust the fact that the hotel they're in is a real hotel. They can't even yeah. trust their own bodies. It, it 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 shreds these characters down to absolutely nothing. Yeah. And really the only resolution you get is at the very end when Joe Chip focuses on an Ubik salesperson showing up and then this woman shows up and gives him a can of Ubik and then he decides that he wants to summon her again for a date. And like that's the only the only glimmer of hope in the entire book is that that he's going to date the Ubik salesperson that he can summon with his mind. Yes. Well, and and I think Ella Ronstadter has actually probably got a... The implication is she probably moves on to a, a, a better life. Or at least yes, a new that's one true. that's good. Um, you hope so, anyway. No, this is this is just relentlessly shredding. Yes. The, the further into this you get, the, the more it kind of takes away from these, these characters. And in fact, there's an interesting mechanic... I don't. I don't know if you noticed this, but basically, Joe doesn't operate very well by himself. So you know, when Joe is working with Runcitter, that's fine. When Joe is working with Gigi uh, Ashwood, who's the talent scout, he's fine. These people kind of keep him functional-ish. Mm-hmm. So when this all goes to pieces, you know, there's this one of the other guys whose name I'm totally blanking on uh, partners up with him to form, you know. To be, be be this sort of support for him. Well, this thing's happening. What do you think of this? Well, I think it's this. Well, what what about this? No, I think it's more like this, Joe. We should look at it like this. Then that guy dies. So then somebody come else comes in. It's like, well, what about this? Well, what about this? What about this? Ugh. Then that guy dies. So he goes to go back to the group to ask them something, and they're gone. They've gone to Des Moines. Mm-hmm. And there's just this very real struggle at that point because Joe Chip does not operate by himself. And he's having no. to try and put together coded messages from Runcitter, who's now kind of helping him. And he doesn't to... have like a soundboard to, to bounce ideas no. off of. Like... And then when he gets that back <clears throat> in Des Moines, it gets stripped away from him again because, you know, the friend that he thought he had is, well, actually dead in its jewelry. And then right. it goes through this cycle of people who are. You know what this is? It goes through this whole cycle of people who. That these soundboards that are kind of helping him sound things out, figure things out, until there's nobody left. And then Ella's just like, no, you know, you need to kind of take control of this, carry on. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, oh, hang on, no, I've got this, I've got a can of Ubik, I'm going to go date the Ubik salesperson. It's the first time in the book he takes direct agency over his own actions. Right, and that's, that's an, you know, for for writers, the, the, you know, there's a lesson in that with like the entire book, like there, there are a couple different ways that your protagonist can operate, and and Joe Chip, mostly for most of the book, is a reactionary protagonist. Things are happening, and he's reacting to them. Um, but usually, in a book, what you want is your protagonist to be proactive and to be taking action on the plot. But it, it's really tricky to have a protagonist that's being so reactive and not taking action. But, you know... Well, it, it's, it's not even necessarily that he, he's, he's wholly reactive. For most of the book, he literally doesn't know what's going on. Right. Um, and that's, th- and th- that's there isn't, the trick. There isn't is an obvious, like, way, obvious thing for him to proactively do. It's just, well, what's going on? Let's do this thing. What's going on? Let's do this thing. And it's, it's just interesting that... You sort of get to the end of the story, and he's gone through this whole cycle of, well, I need your help, I need your help, I need your help. No, I got this. Right. And it, it's it's interesting because it's the first time for the guy that's, you know, this big wig with his company, for as much of a financial screw up as he is, he's the big wig in this company. It's the yeah. first time he actually behaves like that. It, it's, 
It's very interesting. Yeah, the entire book is the whole the whole objective is like, you know, let's get to a point where someone else can tell us what to do. Um, <laughs> well, we found a thing out, but let's sit on it for a minute until we find something else out. Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, I think there are a lot of ways where this book could have gone wrong. Like, kick, kick the reader out of the book. Um, I, I don't think many people would be kicked out of this book because of the, the pacing and because he, he no, drops I enough mean, breadcrumbs along the way that you think that you know what's going on. If you, if you think but, of the elements you have, you have what starts off as a corporate espionage sci-fi novel that turns into a space mission sci-fi novel that turns into, you know, missions gone bad, that turns into an investigation that turns into, I don't even want to call it a double cross, a triple cross. Yeah. I don't, I don't even cross. know how to describe that scenario. A, a predatory person is, is hunting both the the kind of protagonist and the primary antagonist at that point it it kind of turns into he turned jory is kind of like a pennywise yeah he, he's he's the he, he's the monster that shows him in the book yeah um but the there's so many places this this could or indeed should have gone wrong because mm-hmm. if you really think about how this story flows it's a horrible mess of a story and even you know both of us have read this book now and like what? What do you think happens after the book? Like, what, if you extrapolate, what's going on? Like, what? What does? What happens with Runciter? Oh, Runciter's totally dead. So, well, I mean, I mean, that's the implication. But therefore, what? Like, like is does is he is he being led on a quest like Joe Chip was? Like, is well, Joe Chip going to start dropping breadcrumbs for him? This in is the, world? the other like, trick. This is the other problem with the story. You don't know anything at any point is concrete or real. Right. What's the truth? There's no there's no reliable narrator. There's no there's no, no anchor there's no anchor in reality. I've read other books like this that that try and do a similar thing where it's just like, well, is this real? Is this real? Is this real? And they don't pull it off. And yet for as for as crazy and sort of story dense I mean this 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 story has an, an active character list for a relatively short book of what 14 or 15 people that are described down to their clothes and they have the, the these personality traits and they interact and for as confusing and crazy as it is it's still coherent it still works right and, I and think, i've, I've I read think longer the... stories that try and do this that don't work no and all. i think i think the difference is that Philip K. Dick does a really good job of giving the reader enough information that the reader thinks that they've got it figured out. Because at almost every point in the book, I had an idea of, this is what I think is going on. And then when the next twist comes, that gets tossed out the window, and I have a couple pages of like cognitive dissonance while I'm trying to parse new information. And then I think I have it figured out again. Well, I'm just trying to think. Was it um, Alfred Hitchcock that was saying, you know, the audience should more know more about what's happening to your characters than the characters do? I he don't probably that, did. Yeah, I that, don't know that's, if that's like, true in this. No, and and that I mean that's you know that's one rule that you can break. I, I've heard it described like the only difference between between a horror and a thriller is the amount of information that the reader knows versus the character and and how. <laughs> You know, like whether the reader is, or maybe it, it was actually a mystery. The difference between a mystery and a thriller is the amount of information the reader knows. If the reader knows, you know, take like the Da Vinci Code. Like you're you're right there with the protagonist, but you're like just slightly ahead of the protagonist, so that you're figuring things out a page or two ahead of him. And that keeps like the pacing of the book going, going, going. And, and really you're fast. you're really not in this. Uh, for as right. fast paced as this is, you don't really know anything else that's going on more than those characters. Right. Um, and I, I, I'd read this before because I, I, I reread this for this. But I, uh, from your perspective, did you really see where this was going at any point? Because there's certain bits I obviously remembered from reading this before. But you know, coming into it fresh, did you see? You know, were you sure they were dead? No, I 
I wasn't I wasn't sure I wasn't sure that they were dead until the conversation with Rensiter in the hotel room. I there there were still things where I was like I'm not sure what's going on like I had an idea like you know maybe maybe they're dead but and Rensiter's not and maybe you know it was all like like I said like every Every plot point in the book, I reassessed what I thought was going on, and I thought that I had it. And then something else would happen. Like when, when, uh, when, when Pat dies, I didn't think that she was not the bad guy until Jory showed up and said, "Oh, I just ate Pat." Like that and, threw and, me for a loop. Like that, and, I, I was to, like, "Oh, to I put gotta... this uh, to put this in the context of story." Pat Conley gets scouted relatively uh, relatively close to the start of the story. Like, basically, they have a talent agent find her, and you know, Joe Chip does his readings. He gets a feel for how powerful she is and gives her a contract with a secret code on the top. It's like this woman is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. So you they keep her know close because well, she's dangerous, right? They they know full well that she's very dangerous, and they want to keep tabs on her. So there's no point in this book that she's not the bad guy up until the point that she's not the bad guy. <laughs> and she even, there's a point at, at the, when they get the team together and they're all in a conference room, they ask her to give her, to give a, an, like a demonstration of her power. And there's like a flashback where, where Joe Chip is married to her. And then when, when he comes back, like he's got this wedding ring that he knows that she gave to him and that they were oh, yeah, married, he remembers but he going can't and remember when they're dead, her powers aren't working anymore, even though she thinks that they are. Quite. So if her powers worked in the conference room, like were they, were they really alive in the concert conference room or has this whole thing been everybody dead all the time? Like, which is a really good question because there doesn't seem to be any good limits on her powers. They, they seem to be near infinitely powerful in, in kind of, uh, range and ability, right? She and yet, the here only she reason... is just trying to get a job. It's like there's something a bit weird about this. Yeah, and I don't, I don't really like. I kind of want to read the book again to see if I. It's, it's kind of like it's one of those books where like you want to read it again now that you know the whole story. Like what mm-hmm. what could you pick up from the beginning? Like is there some is there something in the beginning of the book where you can read it for the second time and be like. Oh, I see. Okay, they're all dead, or they're not all dead, or whatever. Like, because I is is it like the sixth sense where you like watch the movie <laughs> six times and pick up symbolism and stuff? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Like, so and I was going to say uh, one last thing I wanted to bring up. Um, why why do they graphically describe what every single person is wearing every time they introduce them? <laughs> Because this this book was from the sixties, seventies, mm-hmm. early seventies, so it's every person is wearing this insane mishmash of clothes and fabrics and colors, and it's every single time it's it's described, you know, to a T. Uh, let's see, what have we got here? I think yeah. the uh, Gigi Wentworth wore some pretty crazy clothes. Well, uh, the one I've got here is um, a young string bean of a girl with glasses and straight lemon yellow hair wearing a cowboy hat, black lace mantilla, and Bermuda shorts. That would be Edie Dawn. I don't know what a mantilla is. I don't know what a mantilla is. Um, A good-looking older dark woman with tricky deranged eyes who wore a silk sari and nylon obi and bobby socks. Francie something. Mm Mm-hmm. Asari, so that's Indian, and Obi yeah. is Japanese. Bobby Socks, I guess, would be American. Some of these people are wearing twelve colors. It's like um, you ever hear you ever hear stories of uh, people who say that they've encountered Men in Black, where like yeah. uh, the the Men in Black just don't seem to be dressed correctly, like either. Yeah. Either like their clothes are too big or too small, or they're not period appropriate, or <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what it reminds me of. It also reminds me of like um, there's a there's a book series by Dan Wells called um, Blue Screen. That's the okay. first book in the series, anyway, and it's a dystopian like 
a, a cyberpunk dystopian YA trilogy. And um, when he was writing it, he wanted to he wanted to to experiment with like because he thought you know in in a cyberpunk future there's going to be some crazy clothes that you can get like <laughs> so there's there's one character that has like a, a t-shirt that she can program to say whatever she wants or be to color or whatever like um so like the whole series he he's like keenly describing the clothing and part of that is because he he worked in an advertising job in a fashion industry or something oh that's so, funny so he wanted to like apply that right, that experience right. he had with like textiles and stuff, but you know maybe it could be something as simple like I hate to I hate to be like the like the uh, like the the high school kid who's like oh you know uh, you're reading into it too much or whatever, but you know it could be something as simple as like Philip K. Dick was like I want to practice describing clothing and this is an opportunity because people are wearing crazy clothes and a woolly haired adolescent boy wrapped in a superior and cynical cloud of pride. This one in a floral moo moo and spandex bloomers. Can you tell that Philip K. Dick was off his gourd on methamphetamines most of the time or something like, <laughs> well, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you project a cloud of pride wearing a moo moo? I tried to think, I really tried to think. I think we dumped all of the important parts in there. You, you we could Probably. we could go into all, the minutiae of this order. for hours. Yeah, there's so many little things. So many little things. Um, so, in summation, did you enjoy this book? I did. I still don't know what's going on in the book, but I did enjoy <laughs> it. I would agree with that. I I I I think it's. I think you could go back and read this a couple of times, and I think you could get a different interpretation of certain key events every time mm. you read it. Um, I, th I think it's one of the few books I've read where there is really no concrete information at any point, and it kind of doesn't matter. Right. No, this is this is a very interesting this is a very interesting piece of work, and I'll probably read this again at some point. Yeah, it was it was super trippy. Like, I mean, I over the past. Over the past week or so, like, I, I finished reading this, what, like, two weeks ago? Over the past two weeks, like, I've found myself just, like, in a quiet moment when I have my brain to myself. I'll just think, like, but is he dead? I, I don't know. <laughs> Were they Are all they dead? All dead? I, I have no Were idea. Were they ever alive? Right. Are we dead? Is Jory really going to live indefinitely doing this? There's so many questions. Right, I want to see. I, I want to see the showdown between Joe Chip and Jory. Like, <laughs> that yeah. would be good. All right, because there, but there's there's another implication with Jory. I just thought of this. Oh my god! Like, there, there's there's when they're talking about about Jory at some point, they mention that Jory's family, who is anonymous, pays large sums of money for Jory's body to be kept around other people. The, the implication is that like the family is complete. They, they know that Jory is like, is like sucking the life force out of other half-lifers and they want to, they're like complicit with that. Well, Ella, Ella runs it to, uh, uh, touches on the fact that there is a Jory in every mon moratorium. There's, right. there's Some, always the, these kind yeah. of young children that get, sort of put in this position that, that sort of consume people around them and the families pay a lot of money for them to do that. But why? Well, presumably they want the, the kid to stay around. See, I, it didn't have like that, that, that makes sense. I like, I mean, when it, they, it might, when it they, might be when as they... simple as feeding the chronically obese persons. And well, why do you keep, you know, buying the 600 pound man pizzas? Well, he gets hungry. Because pizza's tasty. Well, that too. <laughs> but when, when they drop the information about Jory's family paying large sums of money for him to be kept around other people, it, it didn't seem to me like, oh, they just want to keep talking to their son. It, it seemed malicious somehow to me. Maybe just because as the reader, I knew how vampiric and malicious Jory is. But like... 
I feel like if if my child were doing that, like if I knew that they were doing that to other people, I would try and stop it. Like, so with with uh, that in review, uh, next time, uh, what are we reading? Next time, we're reading "The Great God Pan" by Arthur Mackin. Yeah, the uh, career-ending cult novel by a uh, turn-of-the-century English writer. Was it career-ending? Uh, from everything I read, yeah. Interesting. I haven't I haven't actually read anything about the background of the story. I just no, I just was interested in it because it uh, it was mentioned in the Dunwich Horror. Is this another attempt to turn this into a, a Lovecraft podcast? No, maybe Liar. I don't know. Liar. <laughs> no, but uh, I mean, I, I hadn't read about that. You have to tell me about that. That's interesting. <laughs> so, next time we will be covering uh, the Great God Pan by Arthur Machen. We'll have you, you have you ever have you ever read any Arthur Machen? No. Me neither. This is this is the first one that I read too, so it'll be interesting. Well, well this will be good then. I want my copy of Ubik back. If you enjoyed our podcast, consider liking, subscribing, and maybe even recommending to a friend. We'll see you soon.